with getting a bride for Isaac. When you take that story and you lay it all out, you find that uh, Abraham, he's a type of God the Father. Isaac's the type of Christ. And what he wants is he wants to get a Gentile bride for his son, Isaac. So he has a servant. The servant's not named in that chapter because that servant's a type of the Holy Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit of God seeks no recognition for himself. Got to go back a little bit farther and find his name. So the Holy Spirit of God, the servant, goes on a journey to find a bride for Abraham's son Isaac. And what follows in that story is not only one of the greatest pictures of your salvation, how God sent out the Holy Spirit of God to look for you, but it's a great picture of how to find the right mate, spouse, what to look for. It's one of the most impelling, challenging places in all of the Bible. And um, it always it always interested me that when he finally got her and he brings her back to this fa- the son and they have that marriage, it's found in verse 66. Picture the last book in your Bible when we finally meet our Isaac and that great marriage supper of the Lamb. It's a great story in the Bible. In fact, I'm throwing this one out now. I'm going to preach that one. Turn over to Genesis chapter 24. No. If you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to turn to Je- uh, Proverbs chapter 13. Last week, we, uh, I, I think we saw probably one of the most practical uh, messages on the laws of the Bible in your life and my life. Uh, everything in this world will have laws. It'll either be natural laws of science Natural laws of physics. There'll be a law of, of everything that uh, you find in life. And when it comes to spiritual things, there's also laws that you follow. The rules of conduct. I told you last week that the Bible says in Second Timothy that a young man, uh, Paul talking to Timothy, he says you can go out there and you can try to do everything for God that you want to do. But there's some laws that you have to run the race by. And he says, you'll strive for the masteries. You'll try to do everything you think that you, God wants you to do. But the thing that you always want to look at, always, is not what you're doing. Not even thinking what, this is what God wants me to do. The thing you always want to look for, or you're running lawfully. That's the great concept of these laws, the rules of conduct. And today... You know, we are going to look at the next portion of this. But you saw last week that really uh, that the key to the victory in our lives is simply staying with the laws. People like to make the victorious Christian life such a complicated thing. And, you know, you talk to uh, somebody who specializes in that or somebody that writes a book on it who their whole premise is they want to make money off of it, you know. Uh, They will talk about all the different things that you got to do and all of this. But it's really so easy. It's not complicated at all. It's not some formula. It's not some four or five point program. It's just staying with the laws that God has provided for us within the structure that God has given us. And it's just that simple. I told you last week that I have probably what would fill three or four notebooks uh, of these laws. Over the years, as I've seen them and watched them work, 
watched them play out in people's lives, good and bad. Watched them play out in my own life, good and bad. I started to write them down, and I have now probably what would fill up three or four uh, notebooks full of, of them over the years. Lady said one time, I said that last week, and the lady after the service, she said, I could have, you know, just listened to you go on with those. Why don't you just, why don't you just, just take and teach all of those that you have, they would be such a benefit to all of us. And, you know, I kind of chuckled to myself, and the truth of it is, I I do it all the time, just not in the same context of last week. I fall back on these laws in every scenario that I deal with in my ministry, in my own personal life. You could say my whole ministry is wrapped around them, in counseling and dealing with people, in preaching, uh, in the ministry itself to people. When we started the people ministry a couple of years ago, I wanted to take a group of people who voluntarily wanted to really learn the practical side of dealing with just about every issue that would come up in a person's life. I want you to be able to sit down with somebody who's struggling with some stronghold in their life or struggling with some problem in their life. So we started in Genesis. And I simply, you know, I know you said, well, we just went through every story in Genesis, and that's, that's fundamentally true. But what I really did was just start giving you the laws that I had learned by going through the Bible uh, over the years and, and learning the things that are absolute about the rules of conduct of life, the cause and effect. The laws of God will weave their way through everything we try to accomplish for God. And it's so important that we understand them. And the Pro- book of Proverbs are just filled with them. And they absolutely are. And today I want to look at Proverbs chapter 13, verses 17 through 20 here. And we will see yet again some great principles for our lives to always have and keep the victory in our life with the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, it says here in verse 17, a wicked messenger falleth into mischief. But a faithful ambassador is health. Poverty and shame shall be to him that refuses instruction. But he that regardeth reproof shall be honored. The desire accomplished is sweet to the soul. But it is abomination to fools to depart from evil. He that walketh with wise men shall be wise. But a companion of fools shall be destroyed. Ryan, would you stand up and ask God's blessing on the preaching of the Word of God this morning for me? Dear yeah. Father, thank you for this uh, day you've given us today. I ask that you be with Bob and uh, give him the words to say and uh, open up our, 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 our ears and our hearts and let us receive the things that you've given us today. And I ask that uh, you be with all things as we do and endeavor throughout the day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you. Now, verse 17 says, the first part of the verse, a wicked messenger falleth into mischief, but a faithful ambassador is held. Now, here again, one of the key ways to really lay out the book of of Proverbs is the contrast. Contrast is one of the most incredible things that you'll ever apply in trying to understand the Scriptures. Much of Proverbs is built around contrast, a verse that in the first part of the verse will show you something good and then contrast it with something bad. Or sometimes it starts out with something bad and then contrasts it with something good. That's very important to see and understand that as you start to come through the book of Proverbs. 
And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's all through here. Verse 17 says, and we want to look at the first part of the verse, a wicked messenger falleth into mischief. Now, within the Bible, there are many examples of this first part of this Proverbs, uh, as there will be throughout your life. Men and women in the Bible who bear a message of wickedness. You'll find men and women in the Bible who uh, bear a message that is going to deceive somebody or be a false witness. Uh, unfaithful in their message or whatever they're trying to uh, put out. But, you know, you find it in life, too. In any relationship, you know, probably the hardest area to deal with will be the area of being betrayed by a friend. I, I think that, you know, probably in all of the things that you go through in life, and, and everybody's experienced it, nobody's immune from it, yeah, you'll have somebody that you thought was your friend only to find out that they, they really weren't. Uh, you'll face, uh, to your face, they say, you know, they love you. In school, you know, you had people who thought were your best friend and all the time behind they had some ulterior plan or motive. You're going to get a job someplace and it's going to happen there. Somebody is going to be telling you what a great job you're doing and boy, you really know what you're doing and they're cutting you down behind your back. It happens all the time. You see it all the time. An evil message being communicated about you. And as I said, there's many examples of this in the Word of God. And in life, whether you're saved or you're lost, you'll find that you have to, you have to deal with this great principle. It's just a, it's just a matter of life. But one of the greatest, uh, one of the greatest examples of this wicked messenger talked about in Proverbs uh, would be Judas in his betrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when it comes to Judas in the Bible and his betrayal of Christ, I, I completely get it. Uh, when you look at it from a doctrinal application, Judas is the Antichrist. He's the only man in the Bible who's called the son of perdition. And uh, when you find in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, the Antichrist is called the son of perdition. <clears throat> and in John chapter 17, verse 12, Judas is called the son of perdition. It doesn't take much of a spiritual connect the dots to figure out when you put it all together that uh, they're one and the same. And just as the, just as the devil infiltrated uh, Christ's uh, uh, inner circle of the twelve to stop him, then the Antichrist, the devil himself, will infiltrate into this world to stop the second coming of Christ. It's just that simple. And so that's easy to get. But the practical aspect is, will be uh, uh, an incredible insight into where people uh, will fulfill this proverb uh, in your life. You know, most people... When they look at the crucifixion of Christ, most churches for time and eternity have been so sterile when it comes to the crucifixion and the life of Christ. You know, they, they put it in a little box. The, you think of Easter time, you know, Christ on the cross and the death and the burial and the resurrection. And that's, that's all good, and I understand that. But you know, when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John which cover the accounts in the New Testament of the betrayal of Christ and the crucifixion of Christ and the playing out of Judas and his betrayal, you realize that you just get the surface of it there. You don't really get the depth of it. When you go back to the Old Testament passages, if you really want to get an insight into Christ's death on the cross and, and how it applies to you, you'll never find it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
you got to go back to the Old Testament passages that will actually show you what Christ was feeling, what he was thinking on the cross as he was crucified. That Bible in the Old Testament will cover the events when he stand before Pilate early in the morning. It'll cover the events as he's brought before the scribes uh, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees about 11 o'clock in the morning. It'll cover the time when they, when they are beating and whipping him, when he went before uh, Caiaphas and all of the, all of the uh, Roman people that were connected and the Jewish people that wanted to kill him. It'll cover the time and show you his thoughts when, he's, when they're laying him on the cross and they're actually putting the nails in his hands and his feet. The Bible in the Old Testament records for you what is going through his mind. And on that terrible sixth to the ninth hour, when God turned his back on his son, that terrible time, those terrible three hours in the word of God, when the sun refused to shine and the whole earth is covered in a blackness because it's representative of the fact that God now has turned his back on his son. And in the Old Testament, you have the account of during that time, what he's feeling, what he's thinking, and what he's going through. This is why the crucifixion means so little to most of God's people, honestly. This is why most people never, really, Christianity ever really affects the change in their life. All they ever get about Christ's death on the cross is the surface material. The stuff in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John the stuff that you hear at Easter and when a pastor preaches on the crucifixion, he, he's so inept himself at understanding the depth of it that he'd never venture into Isaiah, Psalms, Job 30. He'd never venture into the places in the Old Testament that actually <clears throat> take you to the depth of what Christ is feeling in his betrayal. And you know... <clears throat> It really hurt the Lord what Judas did to him. And when all you see is the doctrinal side of it, you just think it's the devil against God. But there's really more to it than that. There's always more to it than that. You know, when you study the Lord Jesus Christ, you study him as the God-man. But then you also have to see him and examine and study him as the son of man. As the God man, he was very God almighty. As the son of man, it was the human part of him. It was the human part that felt rejection. When he looked over Jerusalem on that hill and wept over them because of the fact that he had come for his people. And they reject, and the rejection was so deep in his heart because of his love for them that he wept for them. There was times when he was hungry. There was times when he had a desire for food, just like you and I do. There was times when he was tired and fell asleep. There's times when he lost a dear friend like Lazarus in John chapter 10 and 11. That here he was, the God-man, and he knew. 
He knew that within that same time frame, he was going to shout the words, Lazarus, come forth, and he was going to raise him from the dead. But the Bible wanted to show you that, yes, he was the God-man, but he was also the Son of Man. And it shows you and me that even though you are a son of God today, and you have Christ living inside you, you're still a human being that has feelings. You're still someone who, who feels the pain of life. And here it was when Lazarus died, the Bible says, and it's easy to remember, it's the shortest verse in the Bible. It simply says, and Jesus wept. The Son of God who was about to raise this man from the dead, why was he weeping? Because God wants to show you and me the account that he was, on all points, the Bible says, Touched with iron infirmities. He could feel the things of, of we all feel. Yet in his case, he was without sin. The prophet Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 6, speaking of Christ's betrayal by the wicked messenger Judas. That verse says, speaking prophetically, and one shall say unto him, speaking to Christ, what are these wounds in thy hands. Then shall he answer those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. You know, a lot of wounds hurt, but betrayal by a friend, wounds by a friend, are probably the worst kind of wounds that a person can ever sustain. I mean, it will always hurt when somebody betrays you or hurts you, like the verse says here, a messenger. But when it's somebody you thought was your friend, it's especially painful. I, I tell you all the time in dealing with people and dealing in the ministry that the rule that you follow is you never take things personally. And that's a good rule to follow. But you know sometimes that rule is hard to follow. Because of the fact we're all human. We're all human. Judas, the messenger of evil. All doctrine aside, it hurt the Lord what Judas did to him. Judas, the messenger of evil, when he turned him over to the scribes and the Pharisees and he sold him out for just 30 pieces of silver. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 50, when, 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 when Judas is bringing everybody that they're going to betray him with, when Jesus sees him coming, he stands up and he calls him friend. Jesus was his friend, but he wasn't Jesus' friend anymore, if he ever was. And then Judas does what everybody probably does when they want to Mass the betrayal. Bible says that he kissed him in verse 49. You know, there's seven kisses in the Bible. Oh, you, you guys need to study that. Seven of them. One of them's on the mouth, hard. Seven kisses in the Bible. One of them is the kiss of betrayal. Of betrayal. 
the kiss of Judas. Kiss of Judas. Psalms chapter 35, verse 14, speaking prophetically. Ah, oh, you don't get it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus, speaking of Jesus prophetically, it says, I, besay, I, 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 I behave myself as though he had been my friend. But he wasn't. Psalms 41, verse 9, <clears throat> Jesus, again, speaking prophetically, he said, Yea, my own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, had lifted up his heel against me. Now, if there's ever any doubt, and you don't have this reference in your Bible that this is a reference to Judas and the Antichrist, that verse right there, doctrinally, Put in there, it goes back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the first prophecy in the Bible on the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. Judas, the messenger of evil, <coughs> sold him to the scribes and the Pharisees <coughs> for 30 pieces of silver. And I want to tell you, man, everything in here about this story is an incredible principle. And boy, is that ever a great principle! 30 pieces of silver. Think about it. And you say, all right, so it was 30 pieces of silver. Yeah, but you know, when you put it into the context, when you who work with people, because you're going to see it in your own life so many times, and to keep you from getting discouraged and keep you from never getting to the point where you it becomes a stumbling block for you, you need to see that the Lord experienced this proverb just like you and I will. And you will find in the ministry, you will invest so much in people and they will sell you out for so little. The Lord for three and a half years had invested everything in those guys. For three and a half years, he, they saw everything that he did. He included them into everything that happened. They had discussed about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. They asked about the end of the world, and they knew their relationship to the kingdom of heaven and all that he invested in them. And yet he sold out for such a small price. And in this proverb here, Judas is the perfect example. Today his name is so associated with the evil messenger of Proverbs 13 that you will not find the name Judas will be found on, a li on any list of names for if it's a boy. <laughs> Nobody names their boy Judas. Nobody. But the name Judas is used today exclusively as a label for a person who portrays somebody and sells them out. And the verse says, a wicked messenger falleth into mischief. Now, I suggest sometime on your own, if you want to investigate what that mischief was, go back to Psalms 109, the whole chapter. And go over to Acts chapter 1, verse 20. Now, the second part of that verse, but a faithful ambassador is health. Now, here you can't miss the New Testament application here because in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, 20, <clears throat> we are called as New Testament Christians 
the ambassadors for Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead be renewed into God. Now the example of an ambassador. An ambassador is you're a representative from your country to a foreign country. We have ambassadors to almost every country exclusively in the world. Those nations will have their ambassadors to our nation. And the concept of an ambassador is simply this. It's to build the bond and keep the relationships going between the two countries. As a forward ambassador, you don't have your own agenda. If you're an ambassador to America from Argentina, from Russia, from wherever, you're as an ambassador, you don't have your own agenda. You don't have your own message. Your job is clearly to impart the message from your government to that government that you're assigned to. You only relay what your government gives you and tells you to do and say. Now, as a Christian, and as God's ambassadors to this world, and the Bible says now that we are saved, our citizenship is now up in heaven, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. This is why, and I tell you all the time, maybe it help you understand a little bit my position on it. This is why, when it comes to politics, I think it's interesting I think it's informative, but only to the extent that it shows me how it all dials into what God is doing in the Word of God. Personally, from a personal standpoint, politics are worthless. We get the idea that there's Christian politicians. There's no such thing as a Christian politician like there's no such thing as there's a Christian mechanic. You drive up through Liberty there, and you see on the side over there next to that big Baptist, Southern Baptist Church, the Brothers um, Fix Your Car Place. <laughs> and it's a Christian Brothers concept. And, and, and I like that. I think, that's a, I think that's wonderful. I'm not fighting at all, but it gives the idea to people that... that that there are such things as Christian mechanics, uh, you know, a mechanic, a Christian mechanics. There's no Christian mechanics. There's just mechanics that are Christians. There's no Christian anything other than a Christian. You say, well, I'm a Christian businessman. No, you're a businessman that's a Christian. And you say, well, I'm a Christian, I'm a, poli- I'm a saved politician. That may be good, but you're not a Christian politician. They say America is a Christian nation. No, America was never a Christian nation. America was a nation who followed and valued Christian principles. It's that simple. You're not a Christian today because of what you do. You're a Christian today because of what happened on the inside of you. But people get confused on that. And we and I and I look at the Democrats. None of us like the Democrats. They're liberal. They care nothing about values. Somebody says, and I, and I get people all the time. And I I, I don't usually get into it because I, I politics is not worth arguing about for me. It it, it it's I, I learn from it. I listen. I look at it, but I never take it too seriously. 
somebody says, well, the Democrats are destroying this country. I got some news for you. The Democrats did not destroy this country. Bible-believing churches who dumped the Word of God destroyed this country. All they did was sow the field and sow the seed that the Democrats could get a foothold and do finish off what they started. That's called perspective. Somebody says, well, I'm a, I'm a conservative. Well, you know what? I'm glad for you. Bottom line is, there's no form of government that is God's form of government other than when Jesus Christ comes back and sits on the throne and sets up God's theocracy. That's the only pure, true, conservative government. Somebody says, well, we were a part of the fundamentalist movement. Well, let me know what those laxatives are because they sound like they work pretty good for you. You know what? The only fundamentalist movement that I'm interested in is God moving his son from up there at the right hand of the throne of God down into Jerusalem. That's the fundamental movement I'm looking for. An ambassador, he, repre- he represents his foreign country. We represent God's government in this lost world. And there can be no message in our messages of deceit. We don't have our own message. We don't have our own agenda. We communicate what the headquarters, our government, has given to us to communicate. And there's no deceit in it. There's no wickedness in it. There's no betrayal in it but only what we are given to speak by our home government. We are pilgrims in a strange land like Abraham, sojourning, looking for a country. Now, without a doubt, the greatest example of this in the Bible will be the Apostle Paul. Where Judas is the greatest example of the wicked messenger, the Apostle Paul was the greatest example of, of, uh, uh, of an ambassador. And his, his, his life is incredible. When you look at his life, you understand that he was the apostle to the church. Every New Testament Bible-believing church on the face of this planet today goes back to him. We talk about the two lines of churches, two lines of Bibles, two lines of Christianity. That true line going back to Antioch will be the line that Paul established. And his life was... Uh, the apostle to the church. He started churches. His work was the establishment of those churches. To him and him alone, and he makes this reference many, many times, God only revealed to him the body mystery of the Gentile world getting New Testament Christianity. When he wrote the book of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians was the book that unveiled and explained that body mystery. His ministry. His ministry was to the Gentiles, where Peter was the key player in the kingdom of heaven to the nation of Israel, the Jew. In Matthew 16, Paul was the key player to the kingdom of God and the Gentiles in the book of Romans and the book of Acts. He's the model ambassador. Never in any case of his ambassadorship did he ever give an evil report. Just a common man that all his life represented the government that was not of this world. A simple tent maker turned ambassador. And that's what God does. God will come down and he'll take you as a common man or a common woman 
Whatever job you do, he'll take you and he'll turn you into being his ambassador. Last week when we were talking about what we talked about last week, I talked to you about back home in Canton. I, I, I thank God for, uh, you know, and I talk about all the time that I hate the time period that I was born in. I would have loved to live back in the days when it meant something. But, but I totally understand, and I am very appreciative that if I had to be born in this sewer, it was in the part of the sewer that allowed me to see the clean water turning into the dirty water. And it gave me a perspective, unlike that I probably would have never gotten anyplace else. And I actually watched, and I've told you this before, I've actually watched how that the, the, the churches that came out of, of that time period that really once stood for the Word of God and believed the Word of God, one by one they began to fall. And in every case, and I saw it, I saw it, I was there. In every case, it was the fact that Education began to creep in and override what the Bible was. I grew up in a time when, as I told you this last week, with, with Mel Sabaka, with Dr. Henniger and Dr. Jo- Bob Johnson, and the conflict that arose over the Word of God. And that conflict ended with that church basically being destroyed as far as any real reality of a good church anymore. And today it stands as a basically an empty shell. And I looked at that, and I looked at these men who had the Bible, knew the Bible, and I watched them get sucked into this movement that was coming across Christianity of higher education. There were places that would, would uh, it, was all, it was all a very, a very subtle plan. There were places that would pass out honorary doctor degrees. And when they gave you an honorary doctor degree, you felt puffed up like you were something special. And of course, that doctor degree that you had or you got, even if you earned it, it came to the point where it was the thing that you had now an, more of an allegiance to the school that gave you that degree. Dr. Johnson back then got his honorary degree as Dr. Henniger from Bob Jones University. And Bob Jones University, like so many of them, and I told you this last week, they, they had everybody jumping through the hoops. A little bit later on, when Dr. Johnson didn't jump through the hoops, you know what they did? Took back his doctorate. That was the trick they had. And boy, once you had that, you didn't want to lose it. And it became an illusion. And I used to look at myself and I used to talk about it with Mel. And we used to say, you know, everybody wants to be a doctor today. You know, a doctor of divinity, a doctor of theology. Everybody wants to be this. Everybody wants to be that. And I said, here it is. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 3, if you look at the Laodicean church, it's, it's wicked, it's wretched, it's miserable, it's sick, it makes God sick. We have a sick church that has never been so sick in its life in the midst of a hundred million doctors and nobody can cure it. Because that's not the answer. There's a guy who, most of you know him, I, we sell his books in the bookstore. 
And, I, and I'm, he's, he's a boy from Canton. <clears throat> I know him very well. <clears throat> and if you look at his books and you would talk to him or look at his website, he's got his name with a PhD, PhD, double D. It's just, it's endless. And, 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 and I know the truth because during that period of time, when it was so important to be a doctor of theology, a doctor of this and a doctor of that in the religious realm. Guys would pop up what we called degree mills. I was telling Chris about this last night. Degree mills. That a guy that was a doctorate, you'd send him $50 and write a three-page thesis on something and he'd send you your doctor degree. And so you now could be a doctor. For $75, you get your THD. It was all about a mill that just produced them because it produced people who their God became education. You never saw that with Paul. He's the greatest example of us falling and just using the Bible. He was an ambassador for God, but he never let it go to his head. He never let anybody or anything exalt him above what he was. And boy, that is so, so important today. He said in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 8, when somebody had challenged him, and he talks about his education in that passage, he says, though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. You know what he's saying in verse 4? When we get down through here, you're going to find that Paul probably, on an education level, had anybody beat hands down. I mean, he says in verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. He kept the law, man. He was on top of everything in that Bible. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. He talked about his education. He was circumcised the eighth day. That means according to the law. He held the rigor of the law. He's of the tribe of the Benjamin. So he's an absolutely bona fide Jew. He's a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He's better than any other man out there when it comes to understanding. You go back to Acts 5, he studied under Galamila, who was one of the, it was the greatest mind of the Old Testament teaching of the Bible any time in the history of Israel. He's a doctor of the law. Paul studied under him. Now when he's saying these things, he's not just blowing smoke. He's saying, you know what? You want to go toe-to-toe with me and talk about your education? Let me tell you something, pal. Here's where I've been. Here's what I've done. I am a Pharisee. To be a Pharisee had to be the most strictest, unbelievable, dedicated. it's, It's unbelievable what they had to do to go through that. But he said, but what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Never one time did Paul ever bring up other than here. 
And the only reason he brought it up here is because of verse 4. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh. You know what he's saying? He says, when you put your education and your degree before your name in the theological realm, it's of the flesh. That's what he said. Verse 8, yet doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung. Somebody find me an NIV back there. I'm sure they got a better word in it than that. You know what he's saying in verse 8? He says, every piece of fleshly knowledge that he got, and it was all about the Bible. He wasn't out and studying science and philosophy. He was studying under the Old Testament mandate of the man who was the greatest mind on the Old Testament law, but it was man's flesh, and it was not God's word. And it never let him puff him up. And yet, you don't want to miss this, all he learned was connected to the word of God. It just wasn't by God. He's just a faithful ambassador with a faithful message. That's all we are. You're not a PhD as a Christian. You're not a PhD. You're not a doctor. You're not even a male nurse. You're an ambassador. You're a saved sinner who deserved hell but saved by the grace of God, and God just wants you to carry the message from his country that you're now a citizen in to this one and leave all the fluff off of it. Of course, the greatest example of this even more than Paul was the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The Bible says that God himself, the greatest theologian in the world, who's called the great physician, who has everything that, that knowledge that anybody could ever want and have, and yet the Bible says he took on the form of a servant. He made himself of no reputation. He didn't walk around in a white suit. He didn't pass out calling cards that said, Dr. Jesus. <laughs> Personal assistant to God Almighty. <laughs> he wasn't a scholar with a tradesman's language. He didn't talk about eschatology and angiology, hemorrhoid nunics. He didn't, he didn't talk about all of the things that common people look at and say, I wonder what they're talking about. He just simply used the everyday things around him. He said things like, you know what? You want to understand God and you? Let me tell you something. See that little sparrow? Sparrow fall to the ground. God knows he fell. You look at that guy over there that's got a lot of hair, God knows the number of hairs on his head. Told you the story years ago. Back in Canton, we had a guy that people used to make fun of him. He obviously had some challenges. Everybody kind of kept him around and everybody kind of just put up with him. 
I, I always thought that he was something special. All the guys who were the pastors had nothing to do with him. And his whole day, he didn't work. He couldn't work. He didn't speak well, well. And all day long, he'd just go around the church parking lot. He'd pick up trash and pick up paper, a little bag. Never said, look at me. Never, never, never complained about anything when it was raining or snowing. He never, never failed to be there. I'm sure he's gone, dead now. And one, and one day, I, I, it, God taught me one of the greatest lessons I ever, I ever had in my life. And it wasn't some, some great theology, some great book I read by somebody, you know. I'd come out of the church back door and I, I, I saw him sticking, his rear end and leg sticking out of the bushes. He had bushes around the church. I forget even forget his name now. And I walked over and I said, are you okay? Said his name. I said, hey, I said, are you okay? And he, he backed out. And he kind of backed out and just kind of sat down. And he had a little bird in his hands that had obviously died and crawled back behind those bushes. And I said, are you okay? And he looked at that little bird. He looked up at me and he said, yeah, I'm good. He said, you know what, Bob? Bible says that not a sparrow falls to the ground. God doesn't know it. God's been here. And I just want to sit here where God was for a few minutes. You don't get that with a PhD. You don't get that with your exalted education in theology. You get that from just being an ambassador. You get that from just going out on a parking lot, picking up trash. Never let anybody exalt you. I'm always suspect of any pastor who likes to put those things in front of his name. I always just say to myself, why do you need that? And, and I know all the answers. I got in a discussion one time with a guy, and, I, and he was pushing a little bit, and, and I was cool with it. I, you know, but, you know, you backed me into a corner, I'll bite you. And I, I was cool with it all, you know, and, and he said, and I said, well, I just don't, I said, what, what's the point? I said, you didn't, I said, you didn't even earn it. I said, if you earned it, I said, I would still tell you what's the point, but at least I would say, well, at least you earned it. You didn't even earn it. And he said, well, brother, you just don't understand. And I said, well, I'm really trying to understand. He said, well, you know what? The reason why I got doctor in front of my name is because, brother, it'll get me in places to witness for God that I couldn't get in with, I didn't have it. I said, oh, well, I'm glad you told me that. I said, that really helps me a lot. He said, that's why I did it. I said, okay, good. I was under the wrong impression. He says, what do you mean? I said, I thought it was the Holy Spirit's job to get you in wherever he wanted you to go. People look at things weird, don't they? It's amazing how unbiblical some people can be who try to be biblical. Look at verse 18. Poverty and shame shall be to him that refuses instruction. But he that regardeth reproof shall be honored. Now this verse is self-explanatory. And we've seen its principles many times throughout the book of Proverbs. And obviously I'm sure you've seen it in action in your life and the lives of others. It's simply a man that refuses instruction will come to shame and poverty. Now, that's a, that's a physical thing in life, and it's a spiritual thing in life. 
there'll be a physical poverty that if you don't listen to your parents, some of you young kids, when you're growing up and you think you know it all and you're going to do it your way, uh, when you get out there in life and you didn't learn the lessons that your parents want to treat you and give you and help you understand because you did not regard uh, their reproof, you'll probably wind up busted and broke. Busted and broke. In a spiritual sense, the same thing happens. You grow up and you do your own thing. You won't listen to anybody and nobody can give you any advice and you won't take reproof and you see it all the time. And my whole ministry, my life has been filled with it. One goes into physical poverty. The other one goes into spiritual poverty. Bankrupt Christianity, I call it. He says, a man that regardeth reproof. Now, I always thought that was interesting. I have that marked in my Bible. I have a lot of little things like that marked in my Bible to catch my eye. Because it says there, if you note that, it, it's not the fact that he just that he hears it. It's not even the fact that he's saying here that he takes it, but rather that he regards it. When you regard something, there's some value to it. A lot of people do things because they know they have to. A lot of people hear things but never do anything with it. But somebody who hears something and regards it, he assigns it to a value in his life. It's a value. It's a value to him. It means something. He regards it. He doesn't just hear it. He doesn't even just do it. Because you can do something without regarding it. But boy, when you regard something, you stop and look at it and you say to yourself, there's value in that for me. You couldn't miss the application if you tried. Shame and honor, judgment seat of Christ ultimately, isn't it? A man who regards reproof, we're going to have honor at the judgment seat of Christ, and a man who doesn't is going to come up shameful at the judgment seat of Christ. Can't miss that aspect of it. A couple of weeks ago, you folks that went to New York, and probably most of you have listened to the tapes by now, on the second time I preached there on the afternoon on their 40th anniversary, you got to hear a little inside of my personal life with Mel Sabaka. Most of you never heard any of that. I've never really shared it with most people. But I wanted that church to understand and know, you know, what they meant to me. And that weekend was about what he had done in the 40 years that, you know, not the 40 years, but the time that he invested up that and then Mike taking it over and going from there. And I just simply talked about how that, at the beginning, how it all happened, where I was at, my relationship with Mel. We had a lot of laughs about it, told a lot of funny things. But I, I told them, and it's, it's, it's true of so many of the guys up there. It's true of Pat. It's true of Mike. It's true of John. So many of those guys up there that we all come out of, out of Canton together. But to me, the term that that Mel was my father in the Lord. That's such a regarding term for me. For me, calling Mel Shabaka my father in the Lord wasn't just a talking point. It wasn't just a cute expression. It wasn't a punchline. It wasn't something that I would say to make him feel gratified. 
without any real true meaning of the biblical sense. I regarded everything that I had with him because I recognized that God had put him in my life. I had told the story up there how how that uh, we started going to church when we were very, when my mom and dad were charter members in that church and how that I don't to this day know what happened, but my mom and dad got mad about something. You know how that goes. And uh, we lived right across the street from the old church. And they quit going, but they sent me. You know how that goes. After a while, I didn't want to go anymore. But Mel never gave up on me. Every Tuesday night, I told this story up there, so some of you have already heard it. Every Tuesday night, they'd have visitation, where they'd go out and visit people in their homes. And every Tuesday night, he would send young people out to come to my door and invite me to church. And I didn't tell them this up there, but it was always at 7 o'clock. And on Tuesday night back then at 7 o'clock was the, move, was the show Combat. Remember that old movie with Vic Saunders and, uh, and Jason, whoever? And that was my favorite show. They'd interrupt it every time. <laughs> and so I got wise to it, and I knew that they were coming every week. So I'd... I'd no, I see their cars pull up. I head out the back door, cut across the alley, get lost for a while. My mom would say he's not here. Well, that worked for about four or five months. And one day I saw him pull up. I got out the back door, looked up, and there was Mel Sabaka standing there. <laughs> he said, where are you going? <clears throat> I said, well, I'm just going out for a while. I said, why are you going out the back door? Strong on the front door. I started to say something. She said, you know, life's got a front door and a back door. And in life, you always want to go out the front door. In life, you don't want to get caught going out the back door. Why don't you come to church this Sunday? (laughs) He found me. He invested in me. He instructed me. And he reproved me. Never in 43 years that I ever betrayed that trust in him. I knew that God had put him in my life to get me where God wanted me to be. And there was never a doubt in my life that he was the man that could give me everything I needed to be everything God wanted me to be. And I regarded his instructions in every aspect of my life. And when he showed me something that I wasn't doing right, I just had enough sense to know he knew more about it than I did. I regarded his reproof. I regarded his instructions. I looked at it as God could have sent me any place he wanted me to go. There were some good churches back then. It wasn't like it is today. Back then, there was even a couple Methodist churches that were hellfire damnation preachers. They're not anymore, but they were then. And I realized God could have sent me anywhere. But I understood 
that he had the instruction that I needed. And I wasn't going to refuse it. And God built in my life to this day, to this day, to this day. And I told him up there to this day, everything I do, I look through the eyes of his rebuke, his instructions, and his reproof. Because I know more than anything else on this planet that he was the man that God put in my life to get me where God wanted me to be. Verse 19 says, The desire accomplished is sweet to the soul, but it is abomination to fools to depart from evil. You know, that word desire, boy, that's such a good word. When I go back to those times in my own life and I look at things back then, I look at him, and he was far from perfect. But he was the man that I found God through. He was the man that showed me there was a real true Bible I could invest my heart and my soul in. And he's the man that showed me the real meaning of desire. You see, most of God's people are saved and on their way to heaven, but they simply have no desire for the things of God beyond that point. Psalms 38, 19 says, David said, Lord, all my desire is before thee. Psalm 145, 19 says, he will fulfill the desire of him that feareth him. Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of your heart. Now, when a man fulfills what God's desire is for him, now that's not what you want to do. That's following the laws, the structure, and getting God's desire for your life, not your own desire. When you do that, it will be sweet to that man's soul. That's the closest definition to I can ever come to, to the word satisfied. You know, so many of God's people today are so unsatisfied. And this goes back to they have the wrong desire. God has a desire for each of you here today. A desire for us to do something for him. Finding God's desire for yourself. And when you don't do that because you won't regard the reproof, the source of all our Christianity will be turmoil in everything that we try to do. What he desires you to be, not what you desire to be. And even when you may be dealing with what that exactly is, because I know I did, there was times in my life when I first started going out to camp and I'd hear these young guys preach and I could really play the trumpet pretty well and they would love me leading singing and I would watch them preach and I had such a desire. On one day I would say to Mel, God's called me to preach and he'd say, well, praise the Lord. And then the next day I'd say, God's called me to lead singing and he'd say, that's good too, praise the Lord. He never just jumped in on anything because he knew I was struggling. But what he knew was if I just stayed with what God had given me, God would work it all out. Say, did he? I don't know. Here I am. You tell me. <laughs> Listen, God is not the author of confusion. 
within God's structure, there should never be a time when you can't see God doing something, even though you don't totally understand what it is. But that's why God's given you a structure. That's why he's given you a church. That's why he's given, gave me a Mel Sabaka. When the things were foggy in my life, he had the best fog lights in town. The key word in our lives of getting God's desire is when you do, it's sweet to your soul. And when the things of God are sweet to your soul, you know what? Nothing in life bothers you much. Things don't nearly have the impact that you think they would if you don't have that sweetness. In the old days, when you had to take bad medicine, tasted bad, they give it to you with a spoon of sugar. If I remember right, isn't there a Mary Poppins song that goes something along that lines? I mean, on the record, I am not a Mary Poppins fan. <clears throat> I think she was a communist bigot, and I think she's probably trying to overthrow the country, flying around on an umbrella, <laughs> hanging out with chimney sweeps. <clears throat> Now, when you have the sweetness of God in your soul, because you have the right desire in your heart, even the bitter things in life are sweet. I remember reading the story of Charles Wesley. Most people know about John Wesley, who was the great preacher. <clears throat> Most people don't know much about his brother, Charles Wesley, who was a great hymn writer. Many of the songs in our hymn book were written by Charles Wesley, great hymn writer. And that's funny, you know, him, they were, they were high Anglican church over in England. And there was a great revival over in America and Georgia and down in the southern states. And they wanted to get in on it. Neither one of them were yet saved. And they came over on a boat from then to Georgia and just flopped on their face. They tried to preach and have great revivals, and because they weren't saved and they didn't know what they were doing, they just didn't work. I love great unsung heroes. People, the people don't know who their names are. Most people would never know who Peter Bolin was. We talk about Charles Wesley and John Wesley, George Whitfield. You never hear any messages on Peter Bolin. When John and Charles came back, they were going back to England, defeated. And on that ship going back, they met a guy by the name of Peter Bolin, who was a Moravian. And he's the man who won both of them to Christ and set in action two of the greatest Soldiers for the Lord that the world has ever seen. Charles's favorite verse was Psalms 17, verse 15. And he was a man who founds God's desire in his life. Psalm 17, 15 says, As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied. When I awake with thy likeness. Well, he got old. There was a day come that 
when he went to bed that he wasn't going to get out of bed and he was going to die. They called his friends around him and they held his hands and they prayed and they sang songs. And as he looked up at his friends with a smile on his face, he quoted his famous verse and he said, As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. Day rolled on, he got worse. He'd kind of be in and out and open his eyes and his friends would be standing around him and he'd try to quote that verse and he didn't have the energy and the strength to do it. Around six or seven that evening, they called all the family and friends in and they said, we think he's passed on. The doctor came in and leaned down close to his mouth to feel any breath coming out of his nose. And in the last feeble moments before I went home to be with the Lord, the one little word came across his lips, satisfied. He'd found God's desire and he was satisfied. Let me tell you something. Nothing will satisfy you in this world. Nothing will be as sweet to your soul in this world than having God's desire in your life. Last part of the verse, but it's abomination to fool to depart from evil. Fool looks at the instruction of God, the law of God, because they have set their desire above God's desire. They'll forsake the very thing that God has put in their life to keep them safe and in the process a sweetness to the soul. The sweetness of the soul cannot be fabricated. It has to be God-ordained. This is the reason why so many of God's people get so angry or so bitter, so easy, want to get into conflict and confrontation. Because they have no sweetness in their soul. Verse 20 says, He that walketh with the wise men shall be wise, but a company of fools shall be destroyed. Now, we have talked much about this principle in our Proverbs study, Proverbs 3.10, 2.12, Proverbs 5, Proverbs 7, on and on, the people we associate with. Last week, I showed you the law of Psalms 1, how that you quit walking with God and you walk with the ungodly, you're going to stand with the sinners, and then pretty soon you're going to be sitting with the scornful. And you'll start scorning the very things that once God gave you that you were so appreciative of, and now you're turned against them. You simply, ladies and gentlemen, will become who you hang out with. Amen. You want to be a soul winner? You want to know your Bible? Then hang out with the in crowd. When I say the in crowd, I mean the in crowd that's in the Bible. People all my life I've heard talk about, when well, there's always cliques in the church. Yes, that's true. Many times there are many cliques in many churches. But just to keep the record clear, in every church that's a Bible-based, Bible-teaching church, there should be two cliques. Just two. I mean, there was two in Israel's time, and there was two in the early New Testament church times. 
And in every New Testament church, you're going to find a clique of the mixed multitude who aren't doing anything for God, and you're going to find a clique of the people who hold a line and are doing everything with God. Your job is to hang out and get into the right clique. Which one you hang with will determine what you become by association. And even in our church, as much as you want to teach and believe the Bible, any church really, whether it's here in New York or whether it's anywhere in this country, you will have people who will take away from whatever God wants to do in your life and try to hurt your desire. And simply by hanging out with them will just take the sharpness off of everything what God wants you to do. Show me your friends. I'll show you your future. The idea of teams of solid people working together. The older men and women of this church taking the younger ones under your wing, which you do so well here, and invest your time. 50, 60 of you older guys and gals help bringing the new ones along, just like the Bible says. The folks that go up to Lincoln, go out to Wichita, or in the next couple of weeks, we'll go down to Clinton. You people who go up to Lincoln or to Wichita, and I'm sure it will be true when we start going down there, you know that you have found a gold mine. They are the greatest, grandest, sweetest, lovable people who love God's word on this planet. There are times in your life, I know the world's a big place, but there's times that you'd like God to put one hand on this side of the earth and one hand on it and crunch it so Lincoln and Kansas City could get a little closer together. <laughs> your iron, sharpening others to be strong with your character, with your desire, with your strengths with the investment of your life with others. You know, I've told you many, many times how in a family that's outside the structure of the Bible that your younger kids will get lost as the older kids lead them away. Every nasty, dirty, rotten thing I ever learned in my life as a young kid, I learned from somebody that was older. But in churches, it ought to be the reverse. It ought to be the older, stronger Christians bringing the younger ones along, which you do so well. I'll leave you with this. One time a young lady was getting ready to go to the big school dance. She was looking in the mirror upstairs at her gown, which is flowing and very beautiful. And she came down the stairs, happy, swishing, past her father, sitting in a chair as he looked into a cold fireplace. He looked up and he said, now, honey, you do know that your dad does not approve of where you're going tonight and what you're doing. She laughed and said, oh, dad, you're so old fashioned. Dad, Mary's going and she's a Christian. And Jack's taking her and he sings in the choir. Her dad looked at her and he says, honey, come here. She walked over. He says, pick up one of them coals out of the fireplace. She thinking, outwitting her father, knowing that the fireplace hadn't had a fire in it for all day. She reached down and got the farthest one out and brought it up and said, now see, Daddy, 
I didn't get burned at all and tossed it back into the fireplace. Her dad said, come here, honey. She walked over. He says, now look at your hand. And her hand was completely black from the soot and the dirt off that piece of coal. Now the old man says, I know you didn't get burned, but look at your hand. It was filthy with the soot off of that dirty piece of coal. And he said, you may have not gotten burnt this time, my dear, but hanging out with bad company will always guarantee you do get dirty. He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a company of fools shall be destroyed. God has a desire for you. And everything in your life from this point on will depend on that desire and your fulfillment of it running lawfully with the things of God.